Welcome to another episode of Exploring Art Podcast, a Florida Florida in, sorry, Florida International University student podcast for the creative curious. I'm your host, Miguel Misa, and I'm very pleased to have Cody Schnellby. Welcome to Exploring Art Podcast. So great to be here. I'm super excited. We're going to be going over some really cool concepts, uh, discussing beauty, and specifically one, a British playwright named um john dennis and he's a really interesting guy who i loved researching because i got to learn how much he impacted us how a uh, bit of a rivalry he had with alexander pope bit of a bad boy got kicked out of cambridge for fighting and he actually uh coined one of the phrases we popular news steal your thunder which i didn't even understand yeah what it's very it interesting i thought that was pretty cool we both did i think um i'm going to read a little excerpt from him just so we can kind of get some background and, and get into this guy's head a little bit so this is a letter. Um, this one is written in 1688 after crossing from France to Italy in late October 1688 via the Mountain Pass at Mount Sinus in the Savory Alps. The English critic and dramat dramatist John Dennis describes his experience in a letter. As soon as we had conquered one half of the ascent, the unusual height in which we found ourselves, the impending rock that hung over us, the dreadful depth of the precious a precipice and the turret that roared at the bottom gave us such a view as was altogether new and amazing on the other side of the turret was a mountain that equaled ours about the distance of 30 yards from us its craggy cliffs which had descended through the misty gloom of the clouds that surrounded them sometimes gave us a hard press um, prospect and sometimes in the face appeared smooth and beautiful as the most even and fruitful valleys. Some different, so different from themselves were the different parts of it in the very same place nature was seen severe and wanton. In the meantime, we walked upon the very brink in the literal sense of destruction. One stumble and both life and carcass would have been at once destroyed. That sense of all this product produced different emotions in me via a delightful horror, a terrible joy, and at the same time that I was infinitely pleased, I trembled. It's hard to read, but it's really impactful because I get really good visualization of kind of the experience he's going through, like doing some hiking and uh, my own experiences with height, understanding that it is a off, it is an awful thing in the sense because it is awful in the sense that there's a lot of awe in the beauty and the majesty of these giant rocks that um, inhabit our world we call mountains. But it is awful in the sense that he's right. You fall off that thing and you are a goner. Yeah, it's uh, the way that he describes it. Um, it sounds like he's at the same time scared of dying like crazy and uh, he's experiencing something uh, sublime from this yeah, experience. He's almost obsessed with it. And I guess it makes you wonder whether or not he's terrified and obsessed with death in other aspects, considering how violent and how, um, I'd say, almost bipolar he is with his, uh, his, his, the way his life ended up playing out from the research that we both have mm -hmm. done. Um, some questions to talk about here. Um, was, would you consider this an aesthetic experience? Uh, I, I would consider aesthetic in the sense that I visualized a lot of the beauty of mountains, but I wouldn't consider it aesthetic in the sense that it was something that I I visualized myself. It was something I saw in my mind's eye. So yeah, I think of it aesthetically in the sense that I've seen myself mountains. 
I know what they look like and I understand um, through my own experiences, the feeling and the aesthetic presence of them. So I can, I can, I can relive that. And I, so in that sense, I do consider it. Okay. Um, how can something so frightening simul simultaneously be pleasing? And that's another beautiful one too, because that brings back to, I think death is a great correlation to it because you look at it and it's something that's frightening. But if you're a cancer patient, for instance, and you're, you're in pain all day and every day and your life is torture, it's almost like a beautiful relief to know that you don't have to experience pain anymore, even though it is a, uh, a sad thing, a terrifying thing, but then they can also be viewed as a peaceful thing. A lot, of, uh, a lot of religions use the transition from life to death as ascension, as a way to shed your humanly existence and, and, and experiencing mm. some higher form of existence. So, yeah, so death, so you're saying that death can be frightening and in some cases pleasing to to experience or uh, to, well, to experience to view yeah. because based on your, based on your perspective because like I said if you look at death yeah. as a gift in the sense that you're ascending then it's mm -hmm. a beautiful process because yeah. now this person is becoming like a butterfly they're metamorphizing into a higher being mm -hmm. but it is terrifying in the sense that it's it's the most unknown thing because once someone dies you literally can't you can't have any idea what that experience was like. And yeah. anyone who and it's an inevitability for every living thing on this world. But yeah. we know it's gonna it doesn't matter who you are or when it happens, it will. Yeah, I think I think yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um do you have any experience or do any experiences in the realm of art have this dual character as well? Or is this or is this experience of the sublime confined to nature and not possible for art? I think art experiences are one of the best depictions i think is saturn uh devouring his son uh one of his children yeah uh, and that's a beautiful uh depiction of beauty because you look at it and the the awe the color palette the the detail the vividry of the image um is beautiful and is but it is also striking it says such a graphic such a such a i would use the word demonic depiction of of humanoids interacting it's, it's, it's violence yeah it's yeah. uh a father eating his children yeah and it's on the worst level too because it's it's literally a father destroying his son which is something or one of his children because it's it's it doesn't necessarily i don't i don't know if it specifies gender um and i i i find that i mean i i personally think that makes it that much more offensive because it's something that's such a nuclear and central component of human of, of human systemic thinking is families should be supportive of each other, not destructive of each other. Definitely not cannibalistic of each other. Yeah. I think that, I think that's a good point. Um, I think this applies to not just, uh, I guess not just the visual arts, but this applies towards, uh, other types of arts. Like for me personally, I know, uh, within, uh, music, there's, there's definitely sometimes where, the music can seem frightening and beautiful at the same time in certain ways. Um, uh, one of my favorite pieces is the, the Rite of String by Stravinsky. And it's actually the music's for a ballet that he also, uh, uh, helped to, to help, help to make. And, um, in this, in this play, or I guess it's ballet, uh, there's visions of, there's, uh, depictions, sorry, of human sacrifice, uh, lots of uh but it's usually dancing for human sacrifice in a way to uh how, how do i put this 
the human sacrifice is, is meant to help everyone else in the group. It's it's like a human sacrifice. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a, a sense of word. You we give up this life so that way God doesn't smite the whole village. Yeah, I, I forgot exactly. Um, they're 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 sacrificing uh, a human to some elder god to help protect the village and provide prosperity for everyone else. And in a way, at, at, it's frightening to see it happen uh, on stage and how it's depicted musically is quite, uh, it's, it's jarring. In fact, uh, this, this ballet uh, was so not well taken at its premiere that there was a literal riot um, that happened after it was, uh, after it happened. And then uh, since then, it's uh, been kind of like a cultural, uh, it's just uh, it became very relevant for modern music. It, this, this came out like nineteen, uh, sometime in the nineteen tens. Uh, let me check what year it was. Um, right, spring. Yeah, this came out uh, nineteen thirteen uh, in France, uh, and yeah, there was a riot. Um, but this impact that this had on uh, modern classical music was was pretty great, and. Uh, Stravinsky's style is seen in a lot of things, but there's lots of beautiful melodies in this piece, and at the same time, uh, it's it's frightening at times. And it, if you don't have the ear for this type of thing, it's it's very like what uh, what would you use to classify or categorize something as a violent music? What are what are key characteristics of something that's that produces violent sounds? Is it lots of drums? Is it heavy, like heavy high notes? What is it? Um, it's a good question. Uh, I think violence is depicted uh, lots of different ways within music. Uh, an example, uh, there's a piece by Beethoven. I forgot exactly which one it was, but, um, in it, uh, he, it was about a battle, a specific battle, I think within the Napoleonic Wars that he was commemorating, uh, in this piece. And he uses a lot of the, uh, I think it was the, I think it's the percussion section or uh, or the brass to simulate uh, sounds of like cannons going off and guns, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, the way that, I think we're going off on a tangent, what were we talking about originally? Um, I was sorry. on a little bit of a tangent where we were talking about uh, violence and, uh, yeah. and that played and then you correlated that to music, which I thought was a beautiful yeah. Yeah, but I think I'd like to the back to actually yeah. I'd like to take back to it if you if you don't mind me. Yeah, no, no problem. So to speak of violence and some of the things that uh, that um, Mr. Dennis had was uh, a big um, rivalry with um, Alexander Pope, and uh, there's a there's a really cool uh, quote that I found um, from Alexander Pope where he writes speaking of Mr. Dennis. So he, and I he he uses the word Mr. Dennis, so that's why I'm using it right now. But, and here's the quote, and this is from the uh, Virginia Tech English Department. Um, but if Mr. Dennis's rage proceeds only from a zeal to discourage young and unexperienced writers from scribbling, he should frighten us with his verse, not prowess. For I often know that when all the pro, um, precepts, precepts in the world would not reclaim a sinner, some very sad examples has done this business. Uh, and I thought that was a very, very impactful mm -hmm myself to understand that uh alexander pope saw john dennis um in my fear in my opinion as a threat 
and he saw him as a, uh, a, a, a with a with a, a a lot of you can see a lot of fearful respect, and um in, in, in what I'm interpreting from this uh mm-hmm. this excerpt. Yeah, I think it's uh yeah. Uh, could you talk about why? Uh, what 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 about that? You see the the fearful respect. Well, because in here he talks about how he's uh. Uh, his effect on uh, on on other writers too, because it shows that uh, John Dennis uh, d- he preys on young and inexperienced writers, mm. and it shows him that he's discouraging him. So he goes up to him and he tells him, and he's it, 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 in a verbal manner telling him, "Hey, don't uh, unexperienced writers from scribbling. Don't write. Don't do anything." And and telling him, "Hey, stop, stop, stop trying mm. to be a writer." Okay. Now his his intent for that that's interesting. Whether he's not whether or not he sees them as a threat. Or whether or not he sees him as like unworthy, that would yeah. be a question to ask. It's like, what would he, was he disgusted by them? Like trying to yeah. him, or was he disgusted with? Maybe that was it. Maybe he was disgusted with someone who idolized himself, view because he was disgusted with himself. Because mm. it seems like a very conflicted man from from the violence and the way his life uh, falling into poverty and and obscurity in the later years. Like it doesn't sound like this dude had a very happy life. Yeah. Um... I think that's interesting. I think Alexander Pope was probably fearful of uh, John Dennis's. Yeah, I mean, he, he mentioned that uh, he's a discouraging younger and inexperienced writers from continuing. I guess. Um, yeah, and it's very resentful too, which we can show from this other excerpt where we discuss the term "steal my thunder," which this one is actually one of the most fascinating ones for me because it refers to, um, and this is a quote that I'm getting from the BBC. The, uh, theater, the Theater Royale in uh, Dury Lane is the oldest theater in London, West End. In 1709, a man named John Dennis, who we've been speaking of, invented a machine that sounded just like a clap of thunder. The thunder machine was fantastic, but De- Dennis's play wasn't. So here you see that clash of Dennis having a great invention, but his intended person of the play, it actually got scrapped. They canceled the play. Soon after his opening night, his play was replaced by the production of Macbeth. When John Dennis went back to the Theatre Royale to see this production, he was outraged to discover that his thunder machine was being used in Macbeth without his permission. The story goes um, that he stood up and shouted, they, will let my, they won't let my play run, but they steal my thunder. And so his phrase, to steal someone's thunder, was born. I also find it fascinating that um, there's a big correlation between John Dennis and uh, William Shakespeare as well, too with him doing um, different versions of William Shakespeare's play. And I, as you can see, contributing to his live production of Macbeth and, and probably other stuff too, you, utilizing that Thunder Sound Machine. Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> it's uh, kind of ironic that uh, that was used in almost a literal sense back then. And then now it's uh, yeah, how it pretty evolved. figuratively now. Yeah. yeah, literally and figuratively. Yeah, uh, I think that's pretty funny, yeah. Um, Back to art, um, I had a couple questions up for us to discuss here. Let me, let me find where my notes real quick. Sorry. Here, okay. Uh, one of my questions is, um, why do humans experience pleasure or displeasure from things that have no practical purpose like like aesthetically like say um like a painting in a house or it's a great question yeah um 
I would have to say that it has to come down to like neurochemical reactions when we're, we're evolving in the wild in the sense that you look at things that are good for us. Um, and there had to be some innate re innate understanding of why, of something that's good for, for you, like a berry or a bush or something that's nutritional, right. bright, beautiful, or even in like, in terms of reproduction, like you want a beautiful mate because you want to have the best chance for your offspring to be better than yourself. So oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, I would say that that pretty much would be the, the starting point of where we experience that. And then the trying to translate that into something else. And I think what we did was we tried to copy it. And, and that's what we don't, we're, we're, every time we look at something beautiful as a painting, we're tricking our brain because our brain think that that is, is using that connection of this is useful. This is going to save my life. This is going to be beneficial to me, but it's not actually useful. It's not actually beneficial. It's, it's a trick. Mm. Yeah. And it's like, well, like a Wi-Fi uh, service that's up. Like, let's say your house has, uh, has your Wi-Fi, your network's up, but you have no internet access. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was a, it was good that you mentioned uh, about, um, like, you know, evolution, uh, certain things we, we've uh, been just disposed to be attracted to. Um, and I think that comes to uh, beauty standards for, uh, for, for society and uh, say, like modern society, beauty standards uh, for, I guess, for men and women, like, let's say for men, men need to be I guess the standard for men would be like big, like muscular, tall. There's a structure. It's oh. you have to wear a jaw. You have to have a, it's normally a thicker neck. It's normally a V-shaped body, but in the yeah. opposite of a woman, like you have to have big shoulders. And there's, there's, there's like statistical things that, okay, this is what's beautiful for men. This is what's beautiful for women. And, and it's very interesting why, because you look at it and it's, a lot of it is based in function. Strong yeah. jaw, he can take a punch. He has a high, strong bite strong neck means that you're not going to break your neck if something hits you upper body same thing like you're physically fit you can you can pretty much over over cut over you're, you're pretty much like a bigger specimen than mm-hmm. other people pretty much yeah and and uh, i guess for women uh like one thing i remembered i, I learned uh the uh, one of the reasons men are just more more often attracted to uh bigger busted and uh like wider hipped women is because uh, something like wider hips would, oh, it's easier to birth. Yeah, exactly. Birthing hips. Um, and uh, having bigger breasts uh, means, uh, I guess, more milk for children. And that means that your children will naturally, uh, will more likely grow up to uh, just have a better chance of surviving, uh, which, so, you know, I which I guess in that. modern society isn't like that. Something like that isn't as because like you said like nutrition modern medicine right now you can see that there's a big difference and sorry to cut you off but there's a big difference in developing mm-hmm. developed and developing countries in the sense of how their populations are uh, height wise and intelligence wise just mm-hmm. because of nutrition that's fed to them and yeah. you're right like bigger breasts for, for women for as an example does show even today that hey let's say all society crumbles and this this woman would be able to feed and nourish her child more effectively than another person for instance yeah yeah and, and that's uh, still even even though we do have all these other luxuries yeah well what do you think that these type of beauty standards have for society and can they be can they be measured so it's because certain things i would say uh like certain facial features i don't like for in terms of functionality like you mentioned like having uh, stronger jaws for for you know like you know angular yeah, jaws for men for, like that you know is like normally is just is is categorically shown to be more uh, attractive for a man 
just so I have a mm -hmm. square square wide jaw. Because mm -hmm. uh, uh, for 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 what 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 functional reason do you think that might have had well, in like it's structurally sound? Because the way you okay, look at yeah. it, mm -hmm. it's like saying like a dog with a square head. That when it has a bite force because of that because of the way it's structured, it's going to be more powerful. It's more resilient. It's like yeah, a tank. yeah. It's mm -hmm. oxy because yeah. that's a that is a very geometrically sound shape. And the same thing with the human okay. body. Uh, do you think what well, what do you think that the effects are for these beauty standards for society today? Like, let's say, because yeah, uh, because now I guess uh, due to modern medicine and uh, certain cer certain functional features that might have been attractive, you know, maybe in the Stone Age. Well, here's uh, a here's a here's a here's a fascinating thing that you just pointed out: modern medicine. So functional features. So here we talk about beauty and then non-functional beauty. So we can talk about plastic surgery and, uh, and mm, yeah because now we talk about love breast example is a great one big breasts that are functional and producing um, milk that's a useful thing now fake breasts that aren't functional and don't produce milk is that is not now that's now a beautiful thing but that's not that's by definition non-functional because it is also interesting yeah mm -hmm. and then that affects the genes because now you're mating someone who has this artificial feature that's not going to pass along to the bloodline that's true. Yeah. Because if I have plastic surgery, my kid doesn't inherit that gene. Same if I get a nose job or as a man, if I got pec implants or ab implants, mm -hmm. these are things that are beautiful, but I saw a video of a dude who got like $150,000 worth of uh, plastic surgery and he looks jack buff, way more, way more ripped than I am, but he can't even do a pull up. So he is beautiful, but completely non-functional. And now yeah. he's actually less functional than normal people because he has to sustain and he has to maintain all this non-functional weight that's on his body. Yeah. Because his body's sure. trying to get rid of it. His body's like, oh, this is this is ridiculous. This is useless. Because it is. It's useless. It's just, it literally weighs him down. That's interesting. Yeah. It's good that you brought that up. Um, do you think that beauty standards are, like, harmful? Or or, or do you think that they're beneficial or just neutral I think for I think modern society? I think they're purposeful. I think they serve a purpose in the sense that we do. you do have to have a way of... Um, of, of categorizing and I guess quantitative quantitating uh, breeding stock and visual appealingness is something that's it's seen in all all species on the world. If you look at like which butterflies, oh, yeah. it's the most beautiful butterflies. Peacocks. Um, peacocks. It's, the, it's something that's not exclusive to humans. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, like with peacocks, um, the the big colorful ones are the males because they they have to be more colorful and big looking and beautiful for for the women. Uh, which are usually like brown, kind of, kind of plain. <laughs> uh, they, they don't have, yeah. You know, Women don't have to compete for mates, and the males do. Um, do you I like think that? that, I like that example that was a good one. Because um, for me, I don't think that certain a lot of these uh, beauty standards for society, I think in some ways can be harmful, especially um, for for both women and men. I, I would say because uh, that's for sure. Oh, sorry. What did you say? I, I, I didn't hear. I definitely think they're negative when people try to conform to them too much because yeah. beauty standard, from from my interpretation of it, if it's actually beautiful, it's beautiful because it's natural. It's not beautiful because it's been created. It's beautiful because hmm. this is the way it's supposed to be, not because it's been changed. And also because it serves a purpose. I think that one thing that the, the earth has found is that there's beauty and functionality. There's beauty and purpose. Hmm. And everything that we've described in terms of what's been classically beautiful wide birthing hips, strong jaws, um, really cool patterns on peacocks. Those are things that actually serve functions. 
Yeah, I would agree. Um, the function of this, the function of that. And I'd say the key thing is those functions are passed along genetically to the offspring, as opposed to like working out fitness. Hey, I need you guys to get out of here. You good? Yeah. Okay. Can we, can we pause it for a second? Because I just got oh, some people. In. Sure. Um, I'm All right. I'll pause. So back to where we were. All right. By the way, we are like I got us at twenty one thirty four already. Okay. Uh, I think we keep going. Okay. Or, um, uh, do you want to discuss my questions now? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, discussing the beauty, well, beauty, one thing that I, I found was an interesting question is: is is it possible to like something ugly? and hate something beautiful. Um, and I do think that to be true because there are a lot of things that, um, well, not a lot, but there are some things that are very beautiful that I hate. Um, specifically ex uh, romantic partners who are very good looking, but I don't like them. <laughs> um, but that being said, like I found that to be an interesting question because uh, why, why, if something is ugly, like why would, would our mind aesthetically be allowed to like it will be would be able to get over it like a pug for instance like it's a it's technically an ugly dog but we love them anyways because they're so ugly that they're cute and that's um um and then in the sense of hating something beautiful that's something that's like what is an example of hating something beautiful can you think of one or hating um, something hating you ever hated something because it's beautiful um, that reminds me of, what was that song? The lyric, uh, Don't Hate Me Because I'm Beautiful. What was that? Oh, Don't Hate Me Because I'm by Kerry Washington. Was that Kerry yeah. Washington? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think, so, uh, personally, I can't, I can't find, I can't think of something that I would hate because it is beautiful. Um, I mean, you can hate something because it's ugly because you're like, ah, oh, you're disgusted by what you look at it. But can you hate something for being beautiful? I don't think you can. Because I would say the only thing you can have negative for feelings for something beautiful is maybe jealousy. And that's described in the curiosity yeah. you gave. Don't yeah. hate me because I'm beautiful doesn't refer to, oh, you hate me. You actually hate me. It's pretty much saying don't hate on me. Don't don't be jealous of me and don't talk smack yeah. about me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't, I can't think of anything personally that I would hate because of its beauty. Um, I don't even know. Like, I don't, I'm not sure what particularly like. Are we talking about just visually ugly things? Well, I'd say aesthetic. Well, we can. We're we're in the category of aesthetics right aesthetics, now. Aesthetics, yeah. In the realm of aesthetics, and that's my point is you can love something aesthetically ugly, uh, a cat missing a limb, um, like I said, a pug, some things that are like traditionally not considered beautiful. Yeah. Um, but could you hate something because it was beautiful? Yeah. Because you can love something because it's ugly. Like I said, a cat missing a limb, those are the, those people who get actually get endeared to animals and they develop personalities based on some some else. Or could you hate it because it's beautiful though? Mm. Interesting. I I don't I, I I honestly can't think of one example. Yeah, me me neither. Um I mean I guess you could just I mean some people would just disagree on the ugliness and beauty of a thing. Um, yeah, and then you that, become into that, of what is beauty and what is ugly. But yeah, my, my question comes down to this. Once you define something as beautiful, once you define something as ugly, that, 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 uh, that, that are, I know are ugly, um, 
one of my old cars was a very ugly car. I love yeah. that car. Why? Because it treated me well. It didn't break. And, you know, it was reliable. Uh, I, I wanted me to go back to uh, what I was talking about, beauty standards, because uh, they're not they're not universal because in some ways they're not universal. You know, not not every man is uh, attracted to the same thing and not every woman is attracted to the same thing. So maybe a woman would prefer a skinnier guy, less muscles. A guy would is not attracted to, um, uh, you know, wider birthing hips. Um, That's a good example. Maybe something that that is valid. I think standards uh, for beauty and ugliness are a bit difficult to define because they're not universal. If it was universal, everyone would agree, and there would be no there'd be no realm for anyone to disagree on um, the beauty, uh, beauty or ugliness of a thing. Um, and I think when taking this into art, uh, you look at a painting, uh, let's say it's just, I don't know, a painting of a landscape of, uh, of a beach. let's say a painting of a beach. Um, it's, it's a pretty, I think some people would say it's beautiful. Some people would say it's ugly, but they'd have different reasons for deciding for both. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with you, but. I, I agree with you, but I also would bring you back to my point of that brings us back to deciding whether or not something's beautiful, not be, I don't like it because it's beautiful, not I, I like it because it's ugly. Because mm. now it comes back to the perception of, okay, what? but if that person describes it as beautiful and they like it, but someone else describes it ugly and they don't like it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. But I, I, give, I like the beach example because a beach is generally considered a beautiful thing, but you could hate it because... Maybe you had a traumatic event at the beach. Yeah. Trump, that's a good one to, to state that uh, a pre-existing um, prejudice can can overcome the beauty, the natural beauty of a yeah. thing. Um, make you it know, that just reminded me. I actually I watched a video. Uh, it was this guy, and he was talking about how um, uh, it, it was, it was it, within the realm of like evolutionary psychology, and it's more theoretical in a sense. Um, but a reason we're attracted to natural um, uh, landscapes, such as like an ocean, like such as a beach, you know, uh, visually we feel uh, we are attracted to it because functionally the beach would serve as a water food source. Um, there's a lot of things to take from the ocean in, you know, it's a resource. You're right. And that's yeah, the way it's a resource. Our, our mind is always working. It's always working to, better ourselves so we definitely we definitely are seeing the value of it without hmm. understanding the value of it now if we take this concept and apply it to abstract art i think it gets a bit it's a bit more confusing because let, let's say uh what, what's a good example of, of this that i'm trying to talk about um, oh, that's beautiful that's an abstract art piece i'd say like um burrito would be a good example because mm -hmm. you look at it super colorful super bright super happy um normally figures of people so it's very familiar to us but uh it's very it's very loud it's very confusing it's very geometric yeah. not it's not natural looking at all it, no, no no humans ever look like a burrito painting yeah um something like kandinsky's uh, uh the squares with concentric circles yes it's a uh example. i think it's pretty interesting because it's just we see squares and we see circles within these squares that are, you know, different combinations of colors. And um, if we if we try to take 
I guess, standards of beauty or ugliness to it. It's, uh, oh, you know, that, that, that made me think now. Um, are there some objects or mm, pieces of art that beauty standards don't have an answer for? I like, uh, is there something so abstract in concept or what you're looking at that if you have a, if you have a set of beauty standards, do some of those beauty standards or ugly standards <laughs> just not apply? And what does that mean? That's a, good, that's a good example. And I would say the, um, what's the name of the, uh, the, the beam, um, installation over in Chicago. That's, um, that's metallic. Oh, I'm not sure. Oh, oh, the bean, the, the big metal bean. I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. We studied in one of the chapters, but I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Name. And that's something we look at and he's like, I'm not really sure. Uh, I, I, I'm not really sure how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, I, th I think, I think what, I think beauty and ugliness, I think those are too, it's, I think it's too confining for art. I think sometimes art, expresses other types of i wouldn't say those are emotions but uh um, hmm. yeah uh sorry we had to take a little break uh we're back and uh we were talking about um oh yeah so beauty i was saying that beauty and ugliness i think are a bit confining uh terms to discuss art because sometimes art isn't about uh, beauty or ugliness in a, in a way. I think, um, I think that's one spectrum. So it's, I think it's hard, to, it's hard to quantitatively be decisive about something that's so um, perspective-based. Yeah, uh, that's why, yeah, I think standards for such things are, are a bit, I don't think there's always a good- uh, I think they're subjective. I think yeah, I think there's a, one one thing is interesting though uh, within like uh, within like classical music or like say I, I play the viola and violin and um, I have a teacher to help me <laughs> I've had teachers tell me how to play it uh, and and sound good uh, and in some ways you could say that uh, th this is all subjective like maybe I just want to play violin however I feel like playing it but um, to have like a good sound and not scratch like a chicken on it, um, which is what most people would say sounds ugly. You know, like uh, to be a good musician, to get a job, there's certain standards that you have to have for yourself. But um, in some ways, I guess that is in itself like just subjective. Like these standards are subjective, but in a real world setting, they matter. Does that make sense? Yeah, they do, and and I agree, and I get where you're trying to go. Is and they do, and they don't, because you look at some artists that are a little bit against the norm, like Jimi Hendrix, mm -hmm. who plays with a lot of a, a lot of that uh, chicken scratchy sound, who uses uh, a guitar in ways that are not orthodox, and making making it sound things like uh, the whammy bar, where it's a sound that was never heard with the guitar before, so it's something that they heard it at first, and like a guitar's not supposed to sound like that. It's not a yeah. guitar, and that's ugly. And um, but it's Again, back to perspective. Once, once it started developing, once it started being identified more, then it started becoming more objective. Now, it's seen as beautiful. Mm. 
Interesting, yeah. Um, any, any more questions you have? Um, in terms of quite in terms of questions about beauty, I think we can go on and on about this, and I think we're gonna hit a bunch of little circles, to be honest yeah. with you. Um, because a lot of these come back to, and I think beauty becomes a very perspective, perspective-based thing. And I think it has yeah. to do with experience and situation. Yeah. Because yeah. Your pre, your pre-determined um, experiences are going to affect how you view something in the future and as well as what situation you're viewing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think definitely standards are subjective, but I guess in some real world context, depending on what facet of art that we're talking about. It, it does matter because um, some standards are agreed upon by a majority of people. That's still, I guess, even if a standard is agreed upon by a majority of people, that doesn't make it objective. And that doesn't make it 100% right all the time because I can give you an example. Here's, here's one I just thought of. Let me give you a half rotten piece of chicken. Half rotten, meaning that you can eat half of it. That's okay. pretty up to most people. But I'll tell you this. If I was a man on an island who hadn't eaten in three weeks and I saw a half round piece of chicken, that'd probably be the most beautiful thing. Ever seen. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Maybe you'd, you'd probably even eat the rod part. Who cares? Right. <laughs> yeah. God, thank you for sending me this hat, this half raw piece of chicken. Why? Because that half raw piece of chicken now represents life to me because huh. in, the, in the day, if I don't eat it, I'm going to die. But would you, let's say you were offered a half round piece of chicken and you were offered a fresh piece of chicken, like the best chicken you've ever had in your life. And oh, well, again, now you're changing the perspective. Now you're changing yeah. the situation. And if I was offered the chance to get off the island, I would say, send your chicken back to the kitchen. <laughs> uh -huh. so, uh, but I would say that you could take something ugly and make it beautiful because of the situation you presented. Okay. Was, was, that was my whole point with the chicken analogy. Mm. Obviously, I, I would rather good, good cooked chicken than raw, <laughs> raw yeah raw <laughs> hmm. i guess i guess everything's subjective within art and, and i mean i think we could objectively say that like this is blue um this is what we look at and agree that this is the color blue you know for example um but if we were to if we were to ask a million people uh this is color is this color beautiful or ugly to you you know, and it's just a color. And then you would get a bunch of different answers. Um, now, here's one talking about color that I, I, I learned the other day that was really interesting was that they're doing research now uh, linguistically studying language and color and the relationship between it. And they've realized that if a, if a specific language and a specific culture doesn't have a word for that color, that that color in that culture technically doesn't exist. And they will show that in certain indigenous cultures in South America, they don't have certain words for the colors of blue and green that mix together that form what we know as turquoise. Uh -huh. So for them, when they see it, they look at it like it's just like turquoise. They'll look at it like it's either green or blue. And when you ask them what that is, they'll say green or blue. And then if you show them turquoise next to green or blue, when whatever one they say, they'll identify it with. And it could be two different shades. Like it could literally be turquoise and like evergreen. And they'll say they're the same color. Why? Because their word, they only have a word for green and blue, and they've identified it with the word is green, which means they now, they now group it with every other, every other thing that they associate to be green as well. And I thought that was fascinating. Wow. Yeah. 
And until they developed the word for that thing, that thing did not exist. Now, once they developed the word for it, then they started identifying it as something different. Mm. I think uh, that, that reminded me of, uh, uh, I know some indigenous uh, Aboriginal tribes in Australia. Um, I, I forgot exactly which tribe it was, but they didn't have the concept of numbers past one, like it's either one thing or multiple. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't have an, a concept of like amount of numbers past one. It's one thing or many. Uh, I think, well, uh, especially when looking at art, having a perspective to try to understand such abstract concepts is, is important. Uh, and, and I guess that's, that's, that's art and that's, uh, that's life. And, that's life, brother. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like we ran out of time, man. Do you yeah. want to take it out? Um, yeah. Uh, let me. Uh, yeah, I think oh, we're about God. done here. Let me so just. Okay. Let me take us out here. I, I want to thank you for joining us so much today, uh, Cody Schnelby. I really appreciate it. This concludes Exploring Art Podcast. Subscribe to Exploring Art Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Please join us soon, and remember to stay curious. Thank you so much.